Once you get a Bible, or uh, you can turn to Luke chapter 14. That's where, we, where we're going to be starting this morning, or you can navigate there on your Bible app as well, and we'll be diving in there in just a moment. Uh, this morning, we're going to have the opportunity to continue our series called Pillars, and I'm excited to be able to do that with you this morning. And I want to begin by telling you a bit of a story, right, and kind of just bring you up to some speed on some stuff that, that's transpired for Aaron and I uh, a number of years ago. It was February of 2011, and we discovered a job posting on churchstaffing.com, right? And the posting was from LifePoint Christian Church, and they were looking for a full-time student ministry pastor. Now, for, for many people who find a job in the church world, churchstaffing.com is our monster.com, right? It's our indeed.com. It's how we go about finding different openings around the country or even around the world. And so we found this job posting, and because I had gone to Bible college and had earned a degree in youth ministry, this was the type of position that we were looking uh, to, to apply for or go for. And so I applied for the position. I was so eager, so desperate, really, to get out of Old Navy. That's where I was working at the time. I was tired of folding shirts. I was tired of folding shirts that were only going to get messed up seconds later, right, it was the worst. I had to get free from that prison. Um, <laughs> it wasn't that bad, I guess. But so a few weeks, right, we submit this job application. A few weeks later, we hear back from Pastor Chris, and he would like to continue the interview process. The first step was filling out probably the longest questionnaire known to man. Now, if you know Pastor Chris, you're like, yeah, he is nothing if not thorough. And so after answering questions that had to do with my blood type, right, what kind of things I like to do or drive, I mean, theological beliefs, everything, right, I'm somewhat kidding. Um, <laughs> we, we continued through that interview process and we began having uh, Skype interviews. It was the closest thing that we were going to have to a face-to-face -face interview because Aaron and I were living in northeast Ohio at the time. And so we had some of these interviews, and, and Chris eventually invites us to come out to California as the final step in the interview process. And there was a few different reasons for inviting us out. One is that we could meet face-to-face, -face and we could have some of those final interviews with Pastor Chris and, and the other decision makers on that team. It allowed Aaron and I to attend a Sunday morning service. We had never been, obviously, to LifePoint before, um, and that was pre-online services where we recorded what we had going on here on a Sunday morning. And so it was, gave us a chance to kind of get a glimpse into what a Sunday at LifePoint was like. We got to meet families who would have had uh, kids in the student ministry up until that point. And then we had the opportunity to explore Elk Grove, which was our potential new home. Now, prior to that weekend trip to California, I had never even been to California. So Elk Grove was completely new to us. We didn't even know where it was on a map. We had to look that up. And so when we got here, part of the weekend was Pastor Chris just driving us around and giving us a tour of Elk Grove. He said, all right, these are the streets that run east and west. You got Laguna Bond and you got Elk Grove Boulevard, right? These are the main two east and west. And then here's all the streets that run north and south. He started, you know, pointing out, hey, there's the grocery store. This is the cheapest grocery store with Chris, right? This is where you can get the best deals, um, all that kind of stuff. And so then he started, you know, we, we continued our tour, and he started to point out, like, hey, there's the, uh, where the Elk Grove Mall is going to be. And I was like, cool, right? This is going to be fantastic. We'll be able to have a mall uh, right near where we're going to be living. And, and we were excited about it. And he said, yeah, and it's going to be right across the highway from where our church is going to be because we were in a school at the time. And so we were just excited, like, what a cool ministry opportunity. And, and this mall was going to be great. Elk Grove is finally going to have a mall of our own. 
Well, after moving to Elk Grove, right, Aaron and I are like, when are they going to keep working on this thing, right? And, and like everybody else, when are they going to keep fin or working to finish this project? The structure had been built, but things had obviously stalled out a bit. But we got excited every time we saw an updated sign, coming fall 2016. Oh, cool. They're actually going to start something. Coming fall 2017. Coming fall 2018. They never finished, right? And we know they, ever, they never finished. We're all aware of that. The developers didn't have enough money to complete the project, and so it sat incomplete and vacant for years. And now the project has been completely abandoned. If you've taken a gaze over across the highway in the last few weeks, you've noticed it is gone. Like the whole thing has been demolished. Nothing remains. And the mall was torn down to make way for the Wilton Rancheria Resort and Casino. Now, I'd be lying to you if I told you I wasn't a little bit excited, right? We might get some shows in Elk Grove. Traffic will be insane, but at least we could get some decent shows around here, which would be kind of fun. Now, you may be wondering, what does this have to do with anything, right? What, why are we even talking about an undeveloped mall and a casino? Believe it or not, they actually tie into the passages of Scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning, and I want to show you how. So if you haven't done so already, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. We're going to be starting there, and, and while you're turning there, I want to just provide you with a little bit of context, let you know a little bit about what's going on during Jesus' earthly ministry up until this point in Luke chapter 14. Now, at this point, Jesus had already been teaching for a while, and he had already performed numerous miracles. And so his popularity had begun to grow, and large crowds were following him most everywhere he went. And the fact that large crowds were following him really shouldn't come as a surprise to us. We know that he was a gifted teacher, and so that drew people in. The Bible talks about how he, he taught in a different way with, with authority unlike those of the religious leaders. And so that would have been a way that he drew people in. And then he was performing miracles, right? He had calmed a storm with his words. He was healing people pretty much wherever he went. He had fed 5,000 plus people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Obviously, this was going to draw a crowd. People were like, man, this guy is performing miracles. Let's go check that out. And so large crowds gathered. However, not everyone who followed Jesus around was ready to truly become a follower of Jesus. Meaning there were those who were, who were there because they were captivated by his teaching. He was a gifted communicator and they just liked to listen to him or his stories and his teaching. You had those who were around because they wanted another free meal. Right? They were hungry and said, hey, maybe Jesus is going to, to give us another, uh, provide another miracle and give us another free meal. And I'm sure there was others who were there who just wanted to be entertained. They were kind of waiting, what is he going to do next? What miracle is he going to perform next? And so you had all of these people and all of these reasons for why they had gathered. Now, on a number of occasions throughout the New Testament and during, during Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus addresses the crowd. And he talks about what's required in order to become a true follower of him. In other words, he addresses them and he kind of talks about what separates the fans of Jesus from the followers of Jesus. And, and he talks about how to differentiate between those two groups. And one of those times in which he addresses the crowd is found in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 27. And I want to read those verses for us this morning. 
Luke 14, 25 through 27. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, I got to wonder, when the crowds heard these words, I can't help but think, what was going through their mind? I wonder what their initial reaction would have been when Jesus spoke these words to them. Right? I imagine that what Jesus said would have been somewhat shocking to those who heard it. Because in the eyes of many, Jesus was supposed to be this meek and mild guy. And yet he's teaching now and he's communicating with some very strong language. Perhaps if you're new to church and you're still working on figuring out who is this guy, Jesus, maybe then you're a little surprised as well by some of the things that Jesus is saying. So let's talk about that. Right, let, let's dive in a little bit. Let's find out, well, what is Jesus really talking about in verses 26 and 27? And I think in a nutshell, Jesus is helping them understand that there is a cost to being his disciple, which means follower. There is a cost to following Jesus, being a true follower of Jesus. And he kind of breaks that down for us in these two verses. First, in, uh, excuse me, verse 26 Jesus says that we have to hate our family, even our own life, in order to be his disciple. Now that's some pretty intense language. And it's a little confusing if you also know that Jesus instructs us to love one another. And so what is going on here? This, this doesn't really make sense at first because you see a verse or a passage like John 13 verses 34 and 35. And Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that they are my disciples, if you love one another. So why is Jesus telling us that we need to hate someone, and at the same time telling us that we need to love one another? I mean, this doesn't really make sense. It seems like a contradiction. You might even wonder, is Jesus contradicting himself? And while it is an apparent contradiction, the answer is no. We are supposed to love everyone, just like Jesus instructs us to in John chapter 13. But see, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus is using hyperbole in order to make a point. He wants those who were following him, and he wants all of us to understand that truly following Jesus means our passion, our love, and our devotion to him should be so great that our love for our families by comparison could be considered hatred, right? He's using this exaggeration to, to communicate a point. He's not saying that we should actually hate someone, but he's saying that our, our love for Jesus and our pursuit of him and, and how, how we have this desire to be with him, it should be so great that even as we love our families, by comparison, it could be considered hatred. You see, Jesus wants to be, he deserves to be the most important Thing, most important person in our lives. And in verse 26, he helps us understand that everything must take a backseat to our relationship with him, even the relationships that we would consider most important to us. In verse 27, he kind of goes on to talk about this, this other idea of, of, a, of a cost to following him. 
And he says that we have to carry our cross in order to follow him to be his true disciple. Now, some of the intensity of these words might be lost on us because crucifixion isn't a normal part of our culture. And thankfully so, right? Thankfully so. But the listeners in Jesus' day, those who were following him, when they heard this, they would have understand what Jesus was saying and how intense of, of, of words he was using here. Because they knew in Jesus' day that condemned criminals were oftentimes forced to carry their cross before being crucified on it. And we won't get into it this morning, but it was a horrific way to die. And so I imagine as they heard these words, they would have been pretty startling to them, to, these, to this crowd of individuals. Wait a minute, you want us to do what in order to follow you? To carry our cross to follow you? And so we have to ask ourselves the question again, well, what does Jesus mean by telling the crowds to carry their cross if they want to follow him? What does he want them and us to do? You see, Jesus wants us to, wants us to understand that being a true disciple means we must die to ourselves. We must die to ourselves. For some believers, especially in other parts of the world, this could mean experiencing persecution or death for their beliefs. And as, as fellow believers, as members of the global church, we need to be praying regularly for those who are experiencing that level of persecution for their faith. Now, physical persecution is, is a less likely scenario for the American church, at least for now. But the call to die to ourselves still applies. You see, it means that we must set aside all personal ambition and submit every area of our lives to Jesus. Pastor Chris referenced this last week. He talked about how the salvation story has a decision. Not only to put your faith and trust in Jesus for your salvation. Not only to give everything over to him so that he can save us but also a decision to surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives, to give our lives over to him. And when we surrender to the lordship of Jesus, we're dying to ourselves. Now, of course, recognizing and submitting to the lordship of Jesus, that comes at a cost. And the cost is giving up control of my own life. When I surrender to the lordship of Jesus, I am no longer the CEO of Derek Goody Incorporated, right? I've given up that role. Jesus is now the boss. He's the one calling the shots. And now my new role is to live in obedience to him, to do what he wants me to do, to do things his way. Now, I don't know about you, but I like to be in control, right? I like to be the one who's driving. I like to be the one who has the remote in my hand. I like to be the one who's controlling the volume in my household. I even try to control my kids, which every other parent who's experienced are like Derek, you're a moron. But I try, right? At least I, I try to control or have some semblance of control over my kids. I know that is just a, a exercise in futility, but I try, right? Now, just out of curiosity, by show of hands, how many of you would say, yeah, I'm a control freak. I, I'll, I'll be willing to admit that. All right, cool, cool. The rest of you are also control freaks. You don't just want me telling you what to do. Uh, I'm not raising my hand, right? I get it. I'm on to you. I'm on to you, right? You're all some level of control freak. You're like, I'm not raising my hand if he tells me to raise my hand, right? But there's a little bit of that in all of us. 
right? Where, you know what? I want to be in control. I like running my own life. I want to do things my way. And giving up control is certainly easier said than done, but, but that's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do if we follow Jesus. See, and what we need to understand as well is that when we come to a place where we can surrender our lives to Jesus, when we come to a place where we can give him control, it's important that we understand that our lives may get more difficult. That it, our lives may get a little bit more challenging. Because allowing Jesus to be in charge could mean that we have to leave certain things behind. Or surrendering your life to Jesus could mean that you have to move in order to be where God wants you to be. It can mean that you have to switch jobs, eliminate bad habits, start new habits. For some, allowing Jesus to call the shots can mean getting out of a relationship you know you're not supposed to be in. Submitting every area of our life to Jesus could mean changing how you manage your finances. You see, there's no getting around it. Following Jesus comes at a cost. And if you leave this morning thinking there is no cost to following Jesus, you're missing it. Because scripture is very clear about that. There is a cost to following Jesus. And of course, he's well aware. Jesus is well aware of what he was asking of the crowds who were following him. And he's well aware of what he's asking of you and I when we consider being his follower. And so before we commit to follow him, he tells us, count the cost. Before you commit to me, count the cost. Let's see what Jesus says in chapter, uh, Luke chapter 14, verses 28 through 30. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. The developers of the Elk Grove Mall did not count the cost, right? They not only laid the foundation, they started to build the structure and they were unable to finish. When it comes to our spiritual lives, Jesus doesn't want us to be like the Elk Grove Mall developers. Before we commit to him, he wants us to count the cost and really understand what is required of us before we commit. And it's also important that we get this idea in our heads that, that when we count the cost, that, that doesn't mean we have to get our lives all together before we come to him. That doesn't mean we need to be perfect before we turn to Jesus and follow him. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Rather, he's saying that those who truly desire to follow him they must be ready to commit. They must be prepared to go through the life transformation that will take place as a result of surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus. Now we know, Scripture tells us, Jesus wants everybody to be saved, right? That's his heart. His heart is that everyone would come to know him. And we see that in so many different ways throughout Scripture. He wants all of us to follow him. But not everyone in the crowd were ready to make that commitment. We know from various passages of Scripture that, that plenty of people walked away because after hearing what was required of them, after hearing the cost of following Jesus, they turned and they walked away. They thought 
that's not worth it. That cost is too high. That's too high a price to pay to follow him. And perhaps some of us in this room are thinking that very same thing this morning. Like, man, Jesus demands a lot. That is a really high cost. And certainly the cost of following Jesus is high. It's important, again, that we understand that. However, probably what's more important is that you and I understand that the cost of following Jesus is insignificant compared to what we receive in return. The cost of putting our faith and trust in him and living how he wants us to live, surrendering to the lordship of Jesus, that cost is minimal, nothing compared to what we receive in return. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus makes a statement to the 12 disciples, those who were who his closest followers, who knew him the best, probably better than anybody here on earth. And, and, and he makes a very similar statement to them that he directs towards the crowds in Luke chapter 14. In Matthew 16, verses 24, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, he wants them to understand that there's a cost to follow him. But then he goes on to say in verse 25, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What does that mean? Whoever loses his life for me will find it. What is Jesus talking about right here? You see, when we become a disciple, when we become a true follower of Jesus, we find life. We find life. And we get to experience life on earth that is full and satisfying. Not because we have everything we want. Not because we get to go through life pain-free and without struggle and trial and heartache. But because we have a life that has purpose and significance here and now. And not only that, but on top of that, we inherit eternal life. This is the life he came to give, not only for us now, but as we look ahead to what's next. When our time here comes, on, when our time on this earth comes to an end, we get to be with Jesus forever, where there is no more pain, is no more heartache, no more challenge or struggle. And it's going to be absolutely amazing. But in order for us to find the life Jesus is offering, we must lay ours down. We must die to ourselves. One commentator says, therefore, if, if one wishes to preserve his life, paradoxically, it must be given up to follow Christ. And again, the cost of following Jesus is insignificant compared to what we receive in return. And if you count the cost and understand what you receive in return, you know that the sacrifice you have to make will be worth it. And we see this in the life of Paul. See, Paul is one of the most well-known historical and biblical figures in the New Testament. And, and he went on multiple missionary journeys, traveled throughout Asia and, and Europe, and he converted so many as he preached the gospel. And it was during his third and final missionary journey that the Holy Spirit tells Paul that he wants him to go to Jerusalem. And while Paul doesn't know all the details of what's to come, he has been told that he is going to experience 
persecution for his faith. And so it's on his way to Jerusalem as he's making his way there. He, he makes a, a pit stop at the port of Miletus. And while he's there, he, he sends for the elders of the church in Ephesus. Most likely he knew he wouldn't see these guys again. And so he wanted to say goodbye to them face to face. And I want to read a portion of Paul's farewell address to them, which is found in Acts chapter 20. And we're going to start reading in verse 22. And again, this is his farewell address to these, this group of elders. And he says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Acts 20, 24 is my favorite verse in the Bible. It's, it's a pillar verse for me. It's what I want to build my life on. And the reason I want to build my life on it is because it's all about being completely sold out, being completely sold out, giving everything for Jesus and his mission. And while it's my favorite verse, I have to confess, I don't always do a very good job of living it out. I don't always live a life that's sold out for Jesus. But it's something that I can strive for. It's something that I can focus on. And perhaps Paul was able to make such a bold statement in verse 24 because he knew that the life Jesus would offer in return was more than worth the cost. Jesus, excuse me, Paul believed Jesus' words when he said, whoever wants to lose his life for me will find it. At the beginning of the message, I mentioned that the Elk Grove Mall was torn down to make room for a casino. Now, I, I can't say that I have much experience with casinos. I do enjoy a few card games, but I'm not an avid card player by, by any means. But I know that Texas Hold'em is probably the most popular or, you know, best, perhaps, type of poker, right? Certainly one of the most popular ones. And for those of you who know poker, right, you know that the best hand you can have is a royal flush. Nothing can beat it. There's nothing better than that. And if that's your hand, right, if that's what you're holding, it's easy for you to go all in. It's easy for you to bet all your chips because you know you're going to win. You see, when it comes to following Jesus, he wants us to go all in. He wants us to commit every single aspect of our lives. He wants us to surrender every component of our lives to him, to go all in, to hold nothing back, no matter what hardship or, or challenges or, or hurt or pain there's going to be. And the reason that we can go all in with confidence is because we know that God is not going to leave us. He will not forsake us. That no matter what we challenge we face as a result of following him, that he'll carry us through. And so we can have total confidence that we can go all in because of who he is and what he said he was going to do and has done for us. But so often we fail to do so. So often we hold back. We have this tendency to hold various aspects of our lives 
for ourselves. We'll give the rest to God, but we want to hold on to some things for us. And certainly the reason we do that, it's many, the list is long, and, and it's probably different for every single person in this room, right? We, we start to ask ourselves these questions. Well, you know, I, I just wonder if the cost is really going to be worth it. I mean, is, is the life that God has to offer really that much better? Or at the end of the day, we want to be the CEO of our own life. I want to be in control. I don't want to do what somebody else tells me to do. I want to call the shots. We don't want to live in obedience to God, at least in every area of our lives. But we have this fear. We have this fear of, of how is going all in going to impact my life and the things I've come to enjoy. And so we struggle to let go of certain things or we're worried about how it's going to impact our relationships. Or maybe we want to preserve our comfort. We want to ensure our well-being. We enjoy our lifestyle. We don't want God messing with our money. And again, the reasons for why we hold back are many. But I think the root issue is a lack of faith and trust in God. We just simply don't, we don't believe that he's going to do what he promised to do. Right? We don't trust him. And as a result of our lack of faith and trust in some form or another, we begin to make certain statements. God, I will surrender everything to you. But when it comes to my relationship, I just can't. Like, I know I'm not supposed to be in this relationship, but you don't understand. Like, I, I, I just, I got to control this. God, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you every aspect of my life, but, but not my money, not my finances. I, I need to be the one who's in control of that. God, I will commit every aspect of my life. I will surrender it all to you. I will, but not my time. Like, I want to control all that, God. I'll, I'll give you my money, but, but you can't have my time. Or, God, I, I can't give you my plans. I got plans for my life, God. I don't want you messing with that. I, God, I, I have so many expectations for my life, for the way I see things going. And, and I just got to hold on to that. And we begin to move things away from him so that we can hang on to it. Because there's no way I'm letting it out of my grip. I got to be in control. I don't want to do what somebody else says. I don't want to live in obedience to God, not in every area of my life. And when that happens, our commitment level, when it's, when it's low, our faith becomes stagnant. And our spiritual life begins to look a lot like this, where we're, we're half in and we're, we're half out. And we begin to wonder, well, well, why is it that I don't feel like I have a connection with God? And, and why haven't I grown in my relationship with God? And, and maybe when we start asking ourselves those questions or start to feel like my faith has become stagnant, I'm just plateaued and, and I can't seem to shake it, we need to, we need to take a, a look at our lives and begin to analyze our, ourselves and say, what am I holding on to? What aspect of my life am I not giving over to God? We lack being fully committed. We lack that commitment. 
And of course, being all in is not easy. It's tough, and it's a tough road that's going to require sacrifice, and those sacrifices are going to hurt from time to time. But once we understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you, going all in is the only choice we have. It's the only response that makes sense. And so you and I this morning, we have to ask ourselves the question, what am I holding on to? What am I holding back? Or why am I holding back? The reality is some of you probably already know the answer to that question. You know exactly what you're holding on to. You've been holding on to that for years and years. And God has been trying to get your attention and say, hey, let it go. Open your hand. Give that to me. Let me have that aspect of your life. You don't need to bear that burden. It's mine to bear. Will you just give it to me? But we're like, mm, I don't know, God. I don't trust you. So I'm going to hang on to it. And if that's where you're at this morning, you have to consider, you have to ask yourself, what would it look like for you to give the things that you've been holding on to over to God? Or what step can you take to release your grip and submit those things to God? And it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a process. Sanctification, our becoming more and more like Jesus, it's a process. But what step can you take this week to begin moving an area that you're holding on to closer to God, closer to his control? What's a step you can take? Now, some of us here this morning, we might say, you know what, I'm, I'm willing to admit that there's probably some things that I'm holding on to, but I don't really know what those things might be. I'm not entirely sure. I'm sure I got some of this going on, but, but I haven't really identified those things. And if that's you, then, then you got some work to do, right? You have to do some work to discover what those things might be. And the first step for you is you need to pray. Ask God to reveal those things, right? Because James says, those who draw near to him, he will draw near to us. And so spend some time in prayer every day this week asking God, will you reveal the things that am in my life that I'm continually holding on to, that I haven't given over to you, that I haven't trusted you with, whether it's my kids, my finances, my retirement, my time, whatever the case may be. What are those things? So pray about it. Some of you might even be able to ask somebody that you trust who, who maybe is a, is a mentor for you or a close friend who knows you well, and you can go to them and say, hey, what are the things that you see in my life that I'm holding on to, that I haven't given over to God? Obviously, you need to go to somebody that is going to be honest with you and not just tell you what you want to hear. But maybe that's a step that you can take to identifying some of those areas. If we do that, we get to imagine. Imagine what God could accomplish through us if we were a body of believers who were all in. What would that look like? Hopefully we're moving in that direction, but, but what would it look like? How much fun would that be to be at a church where we were all in? How many people would we be able to reach with the gospel? Right? How many needs would we be able to meet as a church? Now, I hope and pray that we'll all take a next step, whatever that looks like for you, that we would take a next step toward fully surrendering our lives to Jesus. And maybe we'll all be able to say and, and, and follow Paul's example and speak and live out the words 
of Acts 20.24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. 